We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. It has been a while. Um, and let me, let me kind of explain just a little bit briefly um, before we get into what I've, I've got today. As to why it's been a while, I've had a lot of intentions to get down here and do podcasts, but if, if you're new to this, just understand this. Uh, if you've been with me for a while, you kind of already know this. I like to go through the word expositorily. I can do topical studies, and I've done them before. There's many on my podcast channel that you can go and look for, but I, I prefer and I'm more comfortable with uh, for the accountability for myself and for you of doing expository type teaching. So taking books of the Bible and going through it expositorily. The New Testament is way easier to do. Um, it is possible to go through the Old Testament, and there's a lot of benefit in going through the Old Testament. But it is more so of a New Testament thing for me. Um, and so I have pretty much covered most every book of the New Testament on my, whether it be when we're meeting as a fellowship so I've got that all on my podcast channel. I've got that all the sermons that I've done over the last three or four years. I've done James and Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There's one book that recently was recommended to me for me to do, and that is the book of Romans. My hesitancy on that is because as a church, um, we've gone through that. And um, what I didn't want is I didn't want any... Um, feeling of like I was trying to come behind the teaching of the church and undermine anything there because the reality is I'm not going to agree with everything. And um, so anyways, I've had a lot of hesitancies of doing this book, but it is, I think, the only book that I have not really just done in the New Testament um, expositorily that's on the um, my podcast, podcast channel. Um, and so I've had the intentions to come down, but there's been a lot at work as to why I just haven't done it yet. And I apologize for that, but that's just the reason why. Um, so I've kind of unveiled what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing a study over the book of Romans. I have checked with my leadership and they have said, if you feel like it's going to be a blessing, then, um, then yeah, go for it. You know, so very thankful for that. Um, I am in kind of a new season right now, uh, maybe I should say a renewed season of leading something that we have at our church called a journey group in which they essentially put you with about 10 to 12 other people and, and you're just commissioned with the task of leading them as a church within the church. And uh, so that's been good and it's been um, something that's kind of taken up some of my time and just praying for the people and finding how best to, to serve them, to bless them and just meeting with them, and uh, which has been good, but obviously it comes with... A potential risk of being hurt, of being let down, disappointed, frustrated, all those various things. Um, but it has been a, a blessing for sure to kind of get back in the game on that. 
Um, so I'm going to get into the book of Romans. If you're new to this channel, then just know, as I've talked about, I like to go expositorily through it. I'm going to, I'm going to hammer home a lot of things. There's a lot of things that I'm going to talk about that might not get talked about in your church. Um, but I don't ever want to shy away from truth because whether it's a hard truth or a softer truth or whether it's a lighter truth, whatever, truth is truth to me. And for me, I feel like the truths that people don't want to talk about are the ones that we need to talk about. And so I'm going to probably talk about things when we get into Romans 9 and we get into Romans 7, we get into Romans 11. There's things in there that a lot of people might just kind of steer clear of. And I've heard sermons before where it's like when it gets to Romans 7, 1 through 3 or 1 through 4, a lot of people just like to steer clear of that and just be like, hey, no, that that, that doesn't really mean what it says. Let's move on. Um, as they do with Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and various other passages. I don't do that. I'm going to talk about the realities of what is being stated here. And so if you're new, that's my teaching style. I don't want to shy away from anything. Um, in fact, I want to press into the things that other people might shy away from. Um, and I will go expositorily. So with that, uh, because I do it verse by verse and I tie in a lot of other scriptures and a lot of other principles and points, it does usually run about 30 to 40 minutes uh, for each podcast. If you are a listener from old and you're like, hey, finally, after like two or three months or however long it's been, he's finally doing another one. Um, welcome back. And I'm glad to have you. And so we're going to get right into this. Paul, uh, starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ." As a typical Paulinian fashion, he likes to do run-ons. Um, whether or not he was schooled in grammatic um, structure of sentences to be able to say, hey, sometimes it's really good to just end the sentence and begin a new one. Uh, Paul, uh, <laughs> he just gets right into it and he has this lengthy six-verse, one-sentence type thing to start it off. So let's break some of it down. One, you see he identifies himself, as he does in all of his letters, as the one who's writing it. Now, there's all kinds of scholars that like to try to say, like, maybe the book of Timothy was not actually written by Paul. It was written by somebody else. And I'm sure that there's some mysterious things that you can try to say. We brought up from the woodwork and try to say it. The reality is Paul addresses himself. Paul says, I, Paul, a servant, or the Greek word doulos, which means a slave. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. And I want to camp out on that just for a second because in today's society... That word slave, had, at least in America and probably in many other places, um, that, that word slave oftentimes has just this negative connotation, like the word submission. People don't like to talk about submission. We don't like to talk about slavery. And rightfully so. There's a lot of things within the concept of slavery that was wrong, and it was not correct. It was not honoring to God. It was not biblical, if you will. Um, but Paul says that he is a slave of Christ Jesus. And I want us to understand a little bit of the dynamic of how Paul saw his relationship with Jesus Christ. It was not one of just friendship. It was not one of just savior. It was not one of just, oh, he's my homeboy. It was one of coming underneath Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, as I was talking to my journey group not too long ago, 
Um, I have gotten rebuked before for believing in something called lordship theology. And it was new to me. I had to kind of look it up. I was like, what that, that sounds like it's biblical. Uh, I had to look it up. And essentially what it comes down to is, is just saying that Jesus has to be your Lord in order to be saved. And I'm looking at Romans chapter 10. And I'm like, the one who believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. It, it seems pretty biblical. And I, I want us to understand that Paul understood his relationship to Jesus was not equality. It was not one in which he was like, hey, you know what? Jesus is just my friend. Jesus is my homeboy. You know, Jesus, friend of sinners. Hey, no, it was one that he was Lord and master. And even the book of Jude, as I recently had covered not too long ago in one of my previous podcasts, in, uh, I think it's in Jude uh, verse 3, I think he talks about it, going into 5. He says, there's people who are going to come in, they're going to eat with you to love feast, and they're going to deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And they're going to pervert the grace of God and turn it into something as sensuality. We've got to be very clear in the church today that if you want to be saved on that last day, it is not enough to make Jesus your Savior. It's not enough to invite Him into your life. It's not enough to just say, hey, Jesus, can you kind of come alongside me and, and just help me live my life the way that I want to live it? Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with His desires and passions. That means you have made Him Lord. There's no way around it. Paul understood this. And in fact, he starts out every letter, if not every letter, it's almost every letter, but I'm pretty sure it's every letter that he writes with I, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He understood his relationship to him. So going on, he says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. Um, going into 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, he says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We see very clearly as is noted here in Romans and also in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 1 19 through 21 where he says this and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to understand something. Everything that the Old Testament talked about of the coming Christ has been confirmed. And how has it been confirmed? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's what he goes on to talk about. Is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That is what confirmed Jesus as the Christ. Is that he rose from the dead. And I could go into... You know, a sermon I used to, I did a long time ago as to how to witness to an atheist about how can you prove that Christianity is actually real. And one of that, one of those ways is that there's all of human history from the time of Christ until now hinges upon two beliefs. One, the disciples stole the body, right? That's what the Pharisees wanted to say because it's the only thing, that's the only thing. We know for a fact that there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth that lived. Like, that's not even just biblical, that's historical. We know for a fact on that. So all of human history 
hinges upon, do you believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, or do you believe that the, it was all a sham and the disciples stole his body? That's all. That, that's the only two things. And so here, here is my dilemma then. If I'm to believe that the disciples stole his body and it was all a sham and it was all a cover-up for something that they were trying to promote and it wasn't actually real, then why did every one of them, both historically, secularly speaking, and biblically speaking, why did every one of them go to a brutal death to hide a lie? And I'm not just talking about, you know, they got the electric chair or they got a lethal injection or they got shot in the head. I'm talking about brutal deaths to where Peter even said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the manner of my Lord, so do it upside down in a more painful way. Or people being drugged through the street with hooks dug into them as they were drugged through the streets. People thrown down off of temple buildings and then beat with clubs. John even being put in boiling pitch as a, as a way to kill him, but he didn't die. So they had to cast him to the Isle of Patmos. These aren't just biblical accounts. These aren't just historical accounts by Christian theologians. These are secularly historical accounts that these things took place. Why would they do that for a lie? It makes no sense. So what we see here is that everything in the Old Testament that was pointing towards this prophecy of Scripture that a coming Christ would come and it was confirmed through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead in power. That is the testimony of our faith. That is what we believe in. And if I believe in that, then good heavens, why do I ever doubt that God's able to do something in my life if He can raise somebody from the dead like that? And He says, and I can do the same for you. Just something to think about. And so he goes on, he says, I say he goes on. It's this continuation of this one long run-on sentence. You know, you look in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where it talks about the reason we exist was for God, but through Jesus Christ. I love how he says in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship for this purpose. A lot of times we like to just say, hey Jesus, I want you to come into my heart, Right? And it's just enough to believe in him as the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we don't really have to do anything with it because then that's just work-based. Right? I mean, it's, just, it's all about faith. So let's just put our faith in Jesus and we don't really have to do anything because then that would just be work-based. And heaven forbid we, we supplement works to our faith, right? As Second Peter 1 talks about. Here's why Paul received grace and apostleship. Notice it wasn't an unmerited favor that he received. I get so fed up with hearing grace is defined as just unmerited favor. Let me just tell you, you won't find that definition in scripture of it. The word unmerited is not there. Is there an aspect of it being unmerited in which I did not deserve for God to send Jesus on my behalf? Absolutely. Can't deny that. That is part of what grace is, but it is not the fullness of what grace is. I love it how Paul defines it. When you look in, I think it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in the famous passage they talk about that thorn in his flesh. And he asks three times for it to be removed. And then he goes on and he says this, that Jesus' response to him was this. Let me actually turn to it so I don't get it wrong, okay? He says this. Uh, if I can find it. Bear with me just for a moment. 
Um, there it is. Yeah. Okay. So Second Corinthians 11, towards the end of it, he says this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He says, when you are willing to be weakened for my sake, or you're willing to put a foot forward in faith, if you're willing to allow your body to be ridiculed or, or your person to be persecuted and go through trials and afflictions, this is the thorn that he was having and having to endure for the sake of Christ and the gospel. He says, my grace is sufficient because my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace is power. That is the, the most basic de definition of what grace is. It is the favor of God when you've proved yourself faithful. It is the favor of God to do in you what was formerly impossible. That's grace. That's why it says in Titus chapter 3 that grace has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness. It's not unmerited favor that, trans that trains us. It's the power of God. And when we begin to understand what grace truly is, then it changes the dynamic of how we look at the impossible life that we have to live in Christ. And this is part of what it goes into in this with Paul. He says, through whom I have received grace and apostleship, meaning I have been sent to declare this message that's been confirmed through the death of Jesus. I have been sent to declare this message with the power of God in order to bring about an obedience of faith. It's not enough to bring about a conversion. It's not enough to, to just simply make a disciple of Jesus. I want to make obedient slaves unto Christ. And if you don't believe me, go look at what he says in Colossians chapter 1, 28-29. In fact, let me just turn to it real quick so I don't get it wrong and misquote it. But you can hear it directly from Paul's own mouth. He says this, Him we proclaimed, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. You know what that is? That's grace. With his energy that he powerfully works within me. If you're one of the ones who believe that grace is just diagnosed or just explained and defined as unmerited favor. You're missing the, the boat. Because let me tell you. Unmerited means that there's nothing you can do or not do to deserve it or earn it or get it. It's just simply God's unmerited favor bestowed upon you. Regardless of what you do or don't do. That's how un unmerited favor has to be des described. Because that's what unmerited favor means. But then how is that true when you equate it with 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. When he says, yeah, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That means you have to do something to reckon his grace to your account and utilize it. It has been freely offered to us in Christ. But for us to get it and utilize it. It's going to cost us. Therefore, I can't define it as unmerited. Do you see what I'm saying here? Do you see, as somebody has told me before, do you smell what I'm stepping in? Grace is power. As Paul describes where he says, using his energy that he powerfully works within me, that is grace. 
for the apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. It is not enough, pastor, shepherd, teacher, for you to convert a soul and then say, my job's done. It is not enough for you to just deliver the gospel message and a person to surrender his life to Jesus. That is the beginning of what your job truly is. Because God is the one who opens their eyes to understand when he sees the humble heart. It's your job and my job to disciple them and to train them to bring about an obedience of faith unto the perfect man of Jesus Christ. Which is what that word teleos means. To full maturity, to full manhood, or as James 1, 2-4 says, to where they are lacking in nothing. Now let's just wrap our mind around that a little bit, because I hear James 1, 2-4 explained all the time as just a mature man. But that's not what it's talking about. Because he doesn't stop at just saying to a mature man. He says... Let steadfastness have its full effect in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, if I did it, if I dismissed that last part, then I could say, yeah, it's just a mature man. It's just a man that is just mature and he's fully grown and he still has his issues, but he's just a man who's fully grown, right? But he doesn't end it there. He says, lacking in nothing. That's what Paul says that I toiled to produce. Is men and women who could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What are you trying to produce in the people that you're leading? As one who might be being led, what are you trying to allow God to produce in you? Are you satisfied and content with just being lukewarm, milk-based? As 1 Corinthians 3 would put it, in Christ but an infant because you still are okay with just being of the flesh? Or are you pressing on unto perfection? Let me just tell you, if you're not, then you'll never see Jesus. Because here's the reality. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 talks about it where he says, um, Strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now we're going to talk about holiness in just a second. And I find it very um, fitting with what we're going to talk about is what a saint actually is diagnosed in the Greek. If you are not striving for holiness, then you are missing out on something. And you might miss out on the whole thing in the end. Because without striving for holiness, you will not see the Lord. That's, I'm just quoting what scripture teaches. You have need of endurance, as Hebrews 10.36 says, so that after doing the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Notice there's a doing that has to take place. And it's not approving of your faith. It's what the obedience of the faith is all about. So that it can produce that life that needs to be generated in you, both here and later. And if you don't believe me, listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me turn to it real quick. Again, I don't want to misquote it. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says this. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness or training yourself for godliness or to be godlike, to be holy as he is holy in all of your conduct, as 1 Peter 1 says, it has value of every, in every way as it holds promise for this life and for the life to come. Did you catch that? It says you training yourself by the grace that God has afforded you to do so, the power of heaven, to train yourself to be God-like. It holds promise for this life 
and for the life to come. Even more so, he goes right on after it. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive. And he goes on in the very last part of it, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself. Notice Paul is only talking to Timothy here. Keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, notice what he says. You will save both yourself and your hearers. So the concept of Paul receiving grace or power and the apostleship as being a sent one commissioned by God Almighty himself to bring about the obedience of the faith is a really important commission. So if you're just content with making a convert, you're missing the boat. If you're just content with having a disciple and just teaching them here or there just a couple little things about the faith and just kind of letting them do their thing, you're missing the boat. Our job as Christians is to raise up a generation of men and women and children who look like Christ and know how to live a life in power and authority and glory. If you are not doing that with every ounce of energy that God will powerfully work within you, then you and I are missing the boat on what we're doing. So Paul says, I've received power from on high and the commission from on high to go about and seek to produce mature Christians who obey the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple ways you could look at that. One, you could look at it as he's talking about the Christians who are in Rome. And I think that that could be a fitting way of looking at it. However, <clears throat> Taking into context 1 Peter 2.9, I'm not so sure that what it, that's what he's meaning. He says this, for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, when he says all the nations, I would imagine that he's saying, just bear with me, all the nations. Every nation on earth. But then he distinguishes these Christians who are in Rome which would have been included in all the nations, he distinguishes them as being set apart to something different. And I think it's fascinating if you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, But you, meaning Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's not talking about Israel. He's, not talking, he's talking about Christians, the church. We are our own nation. And it's not a nation on earth. It's a nation in heaven. A holy nation. Let me just tell you, there is no nation on earth that is holy. I don't care if you are the, the biggest patriot of America. It is not a holy nation. I don't care if you're the biggest supporter of Israel. I don't care if you're an Israelite. It ain't a holy nation. There is only one holy nation. And that is the church of Jesus Christ because of who we are in and who is in us. We are a heavenly Jerusalem, as it puts it in Hebrews chapter 12. So when I look at this, he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, you are a holy nation. And maybe if the church began to see ourselves as a holy nation instead of being part of some earthly, worldly nation and then being at war with other people. Uh, don't even get me started on that because I am so fed up with the concept of an American Christian or an Israeli Christian or a Pakistani Christian. There is no such thing because it is not a nationality on earth that defines you. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
You and I are part of a holy nation that is heavenly. And we've got to stop dabbling in all these earthly kingdoms and thinking that God takes honor and precedence of one nation over another. Let me just tell you, God doesn't care about America. He might care about the people, but He doesn't care about Americans. God doesn't care about Germany. He might care about the people, but He doesn't care about Germans. Do you understand what I'm saying on this? Nationality means nothing to Him. If nationality meant something to Him, then He would be looking at the Israelites or the Jews and saying, those are my people still. But you know what? Paul makes it clear in in Galatians 6 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Ephesians 2, he says the same thing. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no Jew or Gentile. God has taken the two and He has now made them one in Him. So hopefully we can wrap our mind around that. And if you're, I'm not saying you can't honor your country. I'm not saying you can't love your country. But here's what I'm saying. Is if you are elevating your nationality of the country that you belong to, citizenship, then let me just tell you, you're missing the boat. And you are diminishing the sacrifice of Christ, of what He has called you to belong to on a greater level. Alright, going on, he says this. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now I'm going to start kind of wrapping this up in just a little bit, but I want to camp out on this term saints just for a second. Here's what he says. That word for saints is the, is the Greek word hagios. It's where we get um, hagiosmos is the Greek word that, comes, that stems from that and where we get holiness. But here's what the word means. Sacred. Whether physical, physically or morally blameless and holy. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be holy as He is holy. Let me just tell you again. If you are not striving for the perfection in Christ, to which I believe is attainable on this side of heaven. I believe the word makes it very clear. I know there's all kinds of teachings that like to justify and say, that's not possible, we can't do it, we're not Jesus. No, you're in Him and He's in you and the same power at work in Him is in you. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do we actually believe that? Or is that just for a turn for me to throw a football for 75 yards for a touchdown and win a Super Bowl? Is that what it is, really? That's what we think it is? You are called to pursue holiness. So if you are not pursuing holiness, then you are not walking in the calling to which He has given to you. We are called to be saints. You're not just a saint because you accepted Jesus. You are called unto sainthood. You are called to be hagios. Holy as he is holy in all of your conduct. And people who want to reject that are rejecting the very calling from God's own word. Grace to you. And again, power. It doesn't make any sense for Paul to say unmerited favor to you. Paul is telling them power be given to you. From God and peace be given to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you may accomplish everything that I tell you in this letter. Grace to you. May grace be multiplied to you. Unmerited favor multiplied to you. Come on, it doesn't even make sense. Stop taking the traditional aspect of what you've always heard 
that's just been cliche statement uttered over and over and over throughout the centuries. And we just, we, we land on it because it's like, well, that's what's always been said. Grace is unmerited favor. No, it is not. That is not the definition of grace. Grace is power. And may power from on high be multiplied to you so that you may do what God has commissioned you to do. That is what Paul is stating. He goes on, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And listen very closely to what he says. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Here's what I love about this. As I was reading through this earlier, um, <clears throat> it, just, it, it just struck me. I had to read it a couple times because it just struck me. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say this, because our faith is proclaimed in all the world. He says, your faith. These Christians in Rome are living out their faith in such a way into the obedience of the faith, pursuing holiness. They're living out in such a way that the entire known world has heard of them. Just think about that. Before the days of social media, before the days of internet, before the days of TV and radio and all these platforms and mediums for word to spread... You had snail mail. Their faith was known throughout the entire world. And it made me have to analyze how am I living my life? Do people all over the world know who I am with the advantages of internet and social media and all that stuff? No, they don't. I've got people who listen to these podcast channels, you know, just the other day, I think we had like 90 downloads from, I think it was like Ecuador or something like that. I mean, I've got people from represented in like 70 different countries who have listened to some of these podcasts, but I'm falling short of being known throughout the whole world. But these people's faith, they were living in such a way where their faith was being made known throughout the whole world. And that should humble us. To do better. He goes on. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing. And I don't think Paul is just stating this to sound good about his prayer life. Like I think sometimes we like to elevate our prayer lives to other people. And be like oh yeah I, I, I pray you know twice a day. Uh, I, I pray five times a day. I pray for like three hours at a time. And kudos if you do. I think that's great. What I, I'm not trying to belittle that or make fun of that in any means. What I'm saying is, I don't think Paul is trying to puff himself up. I think he literally prayed without ceasing for them. I think he literally, and, and we don't really imagine that today. We do our flipping five-minute prayers for somebody and we call it good. Paul says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Just yesterday we finished our core values for the journey group. And, and you know, it took about eight to nine weeks to go through these four core values. And we really wanted to take our time through it. And, and one of the things that I said to them is, you know, at the end we might not be best friends. You know, a year from now, two years from now. We might not be like just best friends. So intimately acquainted with each other. Just we're like a one big family that the 12 of us or, you know, 11 of us, however many there are of us. Um, 
Praise God if we are. But I don't have to be best friends to love somebody who's part of the body of Christ. I don't have to be best friends with somebody to sacrifice for them. I don't have to be best friends with somebody who's part of the body of Christ um, in order to serve them and to love them and to honor them. I'm commissioned to do that for anyone who's part of the body of Christ. It's part of being the Adelphos and having that phileo love that he speaks so, so intimately about that we should have with one another. You look at Paul's affection for them. I doubt he was best friends with them. I doubt they were just part of his inner circle that he was like, it's only you that I really pray for all the time and it's only you that I really want to see and long to see. I think that was Paul's heart for anybody who was a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and was living their life accordingly. He's like, I I just long to see you. I long to be with you. I long to encourage you and to be encouraged by you. Let me, let me just ask you, do you long for that in your life? I mean, that's a question that, that I would be presenting to, to my journey group that I'm leading is, do you long to be with people who, who are pursuing Christ and who push you to pursue Christ? Because if not, something's wrong. Proverbs 18.1 talks about it, says, Whoever seeks isolation breaks out against all sound judgment and seeks his own destruction. If you don't long to be with people who are pursuing Christ and who are expecting you to pursue Christ and who are holding you accountable and who want to be held accountable, if that's not part of your heart, if you don't want that, I know you might have been hurt. I know that might be fearful. I know it might not be your cup of tea, but the reality is... If you truly love Christ, you will want those who are with Christ in your life. And Paul longed to be with these Roman Christians. He longed to be with them. And maybe I should say these Christians who are in Rome. To not um, undermine or contradict what I said earlier. He says, I long to be with you and I pray without ceasing that I may get to come and see you that we be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Man, as faithful as what Paul was, can you imagine the kind of faith that these Christians had in Rome to where Paul says, I would be encouraged by your faith? By seeing the things that you're doing? That's pretty amazing to think about. And Paul said, this is what I long for. Everywhere I go, I want to be around people who are making me love Christ more. So it goes on, you know, you can look at 1 Peter 4.10, which talks about as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Um, Paul says that is, you know, even in 1 Corinthians 14.12, he talks about let all things be done for building up the body of Jesus Christ. If you have a gift, if there's something you have received, he says, I want you to use it for the glory of God by serving his body. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. He's not talking about the world necessarily, though it's not absent of that. He says, I want you to use it to serve my body. So as Galatians 6.10 talks about, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. And he goes on, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order... That I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
Paul says, look, I'm under obligation, not just to the Greeks, but I'm also under obligation to the non-Greeks, the ones who would even be considered the, the, um, I think it's barbaroso is the Greek word for barbarians. It means people who are crude and rude and who do not speak Greek. They're ignorant to that language. He says, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel to them too. Because the gospel shows no partiality as to who is included in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're Greek or non-Greek. It doesn't matter if you're a, a slave or free, man, woman. The gospel shows no partiality because God desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So this concept of this predestined elect is not in line with what God's word says about the gospel. That it shows no partiality. And we'll get into that in Romans chapter 9. Because I know that a lot of people have twisted that. And that's a new teaching. You think about it, that concept of predestination under Calvinism. That didn't come around until I think it was the late 1500s. What do you think they believed for the first 1500 years? I can tell you it wasn't Calvinism. That was an indoctrination that man put on the church in order to some preconceived agenda to try to get people to believe what he believed. But that doesn't mean that was truth. The gospel shows no partiality. Paul says, I'm under obligation to preach to everyone. doesn't matter what your skin color is, what your nationality is. doesn't matter if you're man or woman. I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Because God desires all people to be saved. He goes on, and just to wrap this up, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. Notice this, to everyone who believes. He doesn't say that the gospel is the power and the salvation for all who will believe. He doesn't say who all might believe, who have yet to believe, as if the gospel is power to the unbeliever. No, the gospel has power to the believer. Wrap your mind around this. The gospel does not have power to the unbeliever. This is not a, a salvific passage for witnessing and evangelizing. This is a passage for the believer. That power of the gospel is unlocked for the believer when he believes. Not before. Just as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross um, is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul says, once you get saved, you have that power of the gospel unlocked in your life. It is not just, oh, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's part of the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is a person. It is Jesus Christ. It is the mystery that was held um, mysterious or unlocked or veiled or hidden for all these generations prior to, but now has been revealed to his saints. The gospel is a person. And only when you come into that person do you have the power of that gospel unlocked. And it was preached first to the Jews. Not because the Jews are more special than the church. Because I'm going to tell you, they're not. The Jews will be on the outside looking in. One day, they're going to stand before him as Luke 13 says. The Jews will be on the outside looking in. They will not get into heaven unless they had an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ here on earth. They are no longer God's people. Israel is no longer God's nation. It is not the most holy, the holiest place on earth. The holiest place on earth is the one in which the Spirit of God resides in a human heart. 
That is to be the holiest place on earth. There is no such thing as a physical holy place on earth because God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands, as his word says, but in human hearts. So when he says to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, he's not talking about how the Jews are on a hierarchy ranking above the Greeks. He's talking about that it first came to the Jews and the power of God was manifested first through the gospel and the belief of Jesus Christ as Lord the Christ, the Son of the living God. The power of the gospel first came to the Jews and then has spread outward from there. So this is not an evangelism passage. This is a passage about the sanctifying work and the power of God that is done in the heart of the one who believes. The one who is saved. For in it, meaning the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Which is in direct opposition to what Galatians 3 talks about, which was written in the law, that the one who does them shall live by them. It means that you find your life in your obedience to the law. As opposed to this, in the new covenant, we find our life through our faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life. And as we then obey and live out that law of Christ, that life intensifies within us. It increases as he sanctifies us. As Romans 6 goes on to talk about that if you present yourself as an obedient slave unto righteousness, it, gets, it leads to sanctification, which then leads to eternal life. This is why in James 2, when people get it wrong and they say that the works are simply just the proof of your faith, that's not what he says. The concept of James 2 is, is that as you work out your salvation under the law of Christ in this new covenant... It brings your faith to completion in the end. You see that a person is not justified by faith alone, but by works. It's not a contradiction. Romans, as we'll get into in chapter 3, is saying that no one will stand before God being justified by the law of Moses. By works of the law. But that doesn't mean that in the end, that that has any bearing on on the equation. Rather... We still uphold the concept that we need to abide under a law of works. And that'll make sense as we go through Romans chapter 3, so stay with me on this. And that we supplement a law of works to our law of faith in order to stand before him complete in the end. Go read Second Peter chapter 1, somewhere around 3 through 11, somewhere in there. And you're going to find that he says the exact same thing. That we are guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. So supplement to that faith, catch this, works. Which will provide for you an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The concept of James chapter 2 has nothing to do with the proof of your salvation. Though that is a true statement that we need to make sure that we are guarded on. James 2 is referencing the security of your salvation found in the end. That if you supplement works to your faith. That faith will be strong and will grow and grow and grow and it will ultimately be a justifier of you in the end. Because the concept of works, or I'm sorry, the term justified is to be approved. So you can have faith all you want to, but if you are not supplementing works to that faith, 
then there's a high chance that you're not going to stand before him for him to say, check this out. He doesn't say, um, come on in, you one who had faith in me, you pleased me because you had faith in me. What does he say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in the joy of your master. You're approved. Did you catch that? He didn't just say, okay, I'm looking for all those people who at one time in their life, they, they put their faith in me. He says, no, 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 no. I'm looking for the people who did something with it. Who actually wrought an obedience of faith. You know what obedience of faith is? That's, that's works. And he says, well done. My good and faithful servant. You devoted yourself to do something with that faith. You devoted yourself to good works. And you supplemented that to that faith. Now you stand before me justified. Approved before me. Enter into the joy of your master. I am so proud of you. And so, we'll wrap that up. Um, hope that you um, come back for part two. Um, and yeah, because he kind of changes courses just a little bit here and begins to kind of talk about this wrath of God for somebody who doesn't want to do that. So just as John 3.36 says that the one who believes in me has eternal life, um, whoever does not obey me shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Look at the very first verse, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So he says, there's this gospel. And it's the power of heaven from on high to save an individual, to redeem an individual, to bring them into my good graces, if you will. But woe to you if you don't utilize that. Woe to you if you choose to reject that. And his wrath will be poured out if we do not utilize the stewardship of faith. Y'all be blessed.